From News 10 in Sacramento, this is the Capital Connection podcast for Friday, January 31st. The last podcast of January, Anthony. And one day after my parents' 49th wedding anniversary. So happy anniversary, okay. Mom and Dad. Congratulations to the York family. What a, what a milestone. That there is Anthony York from the Los Angeles Times, the good son of the, uh, of, of the good couple from proud. Southern California. We can go proud. proud. We can go proud. All right, I'll go proud for you. Um, and uh, so we're here talking, obviously, politics as normal. Uh, also the last podcast before the Super Bowl, of which I only have one thing to say, Omaha. <laughs> That's that's, that's yeah. all I got. Omaha. All right. all right. You're calling an audible then. Yeah, I am calling an audible, which transitions into now. Yeah. Um, so let's talk. Let's talk politics, and let's start with um, uh, poll numbers. We got a new poll from the Public Policy Institute of California uh, midweek. Little sampling of where Californians um, may reside in their opinion on a few different issues. Uh, first and foremost on this, I think, uh, because it's an election year, the job approval ratings of the governor, the legislature, uh, they asked a little bit about other candidates, but admittedly the poll was taken at an odd time. Uh, if you look at the poll dates, it was taken pretty much um, uh, around the departure of Abel Maldonado from the race and before Neil Kashkari, the newcomer Republican candidate, actually announced. And so uh, I don't think you can read a lot there, although the Tim Donnelly campaign would, would like to say they're the only candidate surveyed in the poll. But <laughs> well, I don't know what that means. I mean, so only candidate surveyed, like, what does that get you? I mean, it's not like the head-to-head numbers were very good for Donnelly. I think if you look at the no, numbers, if you look at the numbers, I mean, the governor, I think right now, looks pretty strong, but... Well, let's let's do that first. So, if you look at the poll numbers here, and that's that's I think that's the first part to talk about. Um, uh, what I was struck by. Let's look at likely voters. Sixty percent of the likely voters in this poll approve of the way the governor is doing his job. That's his highest number since taking uh, office again in 2011. But more striking to me is just from December. In the December poll, 49 percent of likely voters approved of Brown's performance as governor an 11-point bump in one month, and I'm not sure what you make of that, and it's also a bump in uh, all adults surveyed, too, but but uh, 60% of likely voters seems to be a, a, an awfully good place if you're, if you're the Brown camp as you're coming into 2014 and you don't have any major uh, name ID or major wealthy uh, contenders. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The governor is undeniably in a strong position, I think, of all the potential candidates out there, they would all gladly trade places with the governor now. Now, I mean, if you want to make the case of whether or not there will be a campaign, there hasn't been any money spent against Brown, and he's been able to sort of frame things how he sees fit through his state of the state and the budget, you know, if you accept that people pay attention to those things. There's a lot of caveats here when you're talking about state politics, right? Um, but, um, but, but you know, stepping back big picture, realistically, I think most people would tell you the governor is the favorite as of January 31st to, uh, to be elected should he choose to declare his candidacy. You know, he is speaking to the state Democratic Party convention in March, although he has to pull papers before that, right? March, March 7th or something like that? Yeah, he's got a, the, the the month of filing begins on February tenth, and uh, yeah. Think so of all the time we'll save. Think of all after that date passes, all the time we'll save not having to equivocate, and how much <laughs> snappier all of our 
print stories will be not having to put in that phrase or that paragraph. Well, how about for have it for broadcast where time is money. Every second, I no That's longer right. have to say unofficially not running, presumed to run. I could just say candidate That's right. anyway. Well, if you look at if you and, and you go into the poll too, I mean his numbers are very strong uh, among a lot of subsets of Californians. Uh, Democrats seventy six percent. You would expect that. Uh, independents fifty seven percent. Pretty good numbers, I think, as you get here. Thirty six percent of Republicans approve yeah. of the way he's doing his job. I think that was striking to me. Uh, women, men. Uh, younger voters, um, education, income groups, the only places where he had trouble were Republicans, duh, and uh, in the Inland Empire. But even in the Central Valley, uh, Los Angeles was in the high 50s. I mean, this is a guy who, as you said, the campaign has not begun. But but this is the place that, uh, from which you begin the campaign. Those are pretty good. And they also asked about uh, his budget proposal. I mean, a, a, a general description of it. People liked it. Uh, they asked about the idea of a rainy day fund that the governor's talking about, and as are Democrats in the legislature, uh, 69% of adults say yes, they like that idea. And, and that's important because, of, because that will have to be on the ballot in November. 64% of likely voters, uh, a key thing. Um, so if you're the governor, you've, you've picked out some good ideas, and the voters seem to like what you're doing, and it can only go downhill from here. No, but, it's, um, but these are, th- this is the place to start, and if you're any yeah. challenger, uh, you've got a tall task ahead of you, both in voter recognition and in trying to get some traction. Well, there are two elections here, right? There's, there's the June election, which is the race to finish in the top two. And then there's the November election, which is the race for, between the top two and top two finishers. And I, I think some of those numbers you mentioned, particularly the Brown's numbers among Republicans and declined to state voters, are, are interesting when you look at the race between Tim Donnelly and Neil Kashkari. Now, it's not a Republican primary, right, in the traditional sense, but it is right. a race for the second spot. And um, what's interesting is that Jerry Brown, remember, when voters go into the booth this time around, it's going to look very different. It's going to look, it hasn't looked this way on a ballot since 1998, right, where you go in in, in June of 98, where you're going to go in there and on the ballot you're going to see Tim Donnelly, regardless of your party registration, you're going to see Tim Donnelly, Neil Kashkari, and Jerry Brown. And you're going to have an opportunity to pick between those three and a host of, of uh, a dozen or so other people, I would imagine. Uh, now, if those Republicans, those 35% or whatever it was in the poll, um, uh, see Jerry Brown's name and approve of the way he's doing, it's going to be interesting to see if they actually vote for Brown in June. And you would think on the natural that any Republican that would do that uh, would be a Neil Kashkari voter. And so, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a different dynamic. And it'll be, I think, you know, rather than, than watching Brown and how he's going to do in June, although I think that'll be significant, I think, uh, you know, the race that's shaping up is interesting and where there have to be some strategic decisions made is in the race between, uh, between the Republicans, Tim Donnelly and Neil Kashkari. And, and that's why I think, you know, as we've talked about, um, you see them positioning themselves the way they are right now. They have two very different strategies. If you're Tim Donnelly, and you really have to kind of, well, if you're Tim Donnelly, you're playing to the Republican Party base. And frankly, you kind of have to because that's where you have been last several years. You've been in the legislature. You, you have the background that fits the base. You've got to draw out. You've got to turn out the base voters. And if you're Kashkari, it looks like so far you're looking for some kind of 
broader middle ground, um, middle of the political ideological spectrum voters. You you talk about poverty a little bit. You talk about um, uh, education and other issues that are that you know that you're looking for some other kind of appeal. The thing I found about Kashkari, uh, uh, there's there's a slight silver lining I think in this poll uh, for any of the Republicans, but for Kashkari, for example. When they asked uh, people, uh, PPIC asked, um, most important issues facing the state this year. Um, 26% was the number one category, jobs in the economy. Education, 13%. What are the two things that Neil Kashkari uh, tweets over and over and over? Jobs and education. Jobs and education. So he you realized like a Neil that Neil Kashkari are, video. I do. Uh, did I say jobs and education? Um, jobs and education. He, um, he, he's identified them. It's no, it's no secret that those are things that Californians care about. If he can keep his campaign on those issues and he can find some way to push Brown on those issues or perhaps distinguish himself from Donnelly on those issues, then that's a, a very good thing. And also, if you looked in the poll, too, about um, right track, wrong track, Californians think that, Cal- that, that the state is um, more headed on the right track than they have in a while, but there's still some lingering doubts. There's still some concerns. There's still some concerns about uh, tough times ahead. Uh, there's still com- some, some concerns about how much government should spend. There are, um, there are pitfalls for a gubernatorial candidate here, uh, either in what he does or what the legislature does. But that's the Brown message, right? What you just said. The state is on the right track, but there are still some concerns, right? That's why we, it, we need... It doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, though. Well, but I mean, but that's why, you know... That's why he talks about prudence and he's being pushed from the left and, and, and even from Republicans to do more on poverty, to do more on jobs. And, and he's going to say, look, I mean, when he came in, the bar was pretty low, right? And he'll say it's getting better. That, you know, I th- what did he stay, say in the state of the state? A million new jobs. Wasn't that at the top of the California comeback? But there's still, yeah. still danger ahead. I mean, that is the Brown message. Um, now, it'll be, you know, if... It, if the patience of the voters, I think, is a question. I mean, if, if are they still going to feel that thing, if things haven't improved or haven't improved dramatically, uh, you know, the unemployment numbers are getting better, but slowly. I mean, two-tenths of a percent at a time, and, and we still have very high unemployment compared to other states. Um, and so in November, if, if, the, if, if there's still improvement and if that improvement is still not brisk, if it's still more cautious, does that help or hurt Brown or at a certain point? Do voters run out of patience? Can I just insert something that's just really random and probably pointless here? Why not? You, I just thought about this. Yeah, why not? It's a podcast. I just thought about this. You remember back to uh, the presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush, and what were the two things like it became like the the shtick of Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live and others? Wouldn't be prudent, Wouldn't be prudent at prudent. this juncture. Not going to do it, and, and not going to do it. Yes, hold on though. Wouldn't be prudent and Read stay the lips. course. Stay the course. Well, thousand would, would, thousand would, points of light. Prudent and stay the thousand course. points of light. Right. So you're saying I think you're saying this is the Dana Carvey re-election campaign. Yes. I like it. I like sort it. Sort of. Actually, I look, actually, I, I was going to say forward to that gonna, on my nightly news. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say he borrowed Bush 41's playbook. Uh, perhaps in, uh, although it didn't work out very well for for George Herbert Walker Bush, right? right? But no, okay, sure, the Dana Carvey campaign. What I was going to, though, and now that I've inserted complete randomness into a a pretty good discussion here about politics, let's go back to the good stuff. Um, The the thing, though, that is interesting. That was the good stuff. That was the good (laughs) stuff. 
the thing that is interesting, Anthony, uh, it seems to me that you just pointed out, and I think gets us to a, a couple things we've talked about and something you're writing that uh, folks will see in the Times, I guess, tomorrow, um, is issues that Brown is not talking about that could become issues that he has to address and that uh, a lot of his base voters probably would want him to address. And we talked about this on last week's podcast that uh, Neil Kashkari uh, uttering a, um, a, a word that you don't hear a lot of Republican candidates talk about, uh, which is poverty right. and how to deal with poverty. And we didn't hear the governor talk about poverty. And we've heard the president just this past week, just a few days ago in the State of the Union, talk about income inequality, which kind of gets us into the realm of poverty and the haves and the have-nots. And, uh, and, and you've been looking at uh, the governor uh, on this issue, and also the governor got a little bit of a, um, a poke uh, on that issue this week that I, I wonder, you know, what the long-term political effects are. Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting because I, I think if you compare the State of the Union to the State of the State, the rhetoric was very different, right, on poverty. But then when you look at the policies, I mean, this is having, having lived with some of this stuff for the last week and really exploring, you know, trying to explore a little bit on this issue of Brown, Brown and poverty because he is rhetor- it's becoming a rhetorical um, issue against him. But if you look at the policies that are being talked about in Washington, raising the minimum wage, you know, um, that's something that California has already done. I mean, Brown talked a lot about income inequality during the Prop 30 campaign, which is a progressive tax and taxes, it's basically a soak the rich tax proposal. Right. right. Uh, that's something that California has already done. You know, California raised welfare grants by 5%. California, you know, Brown pushed through the LCFF, which long-term, I mean, it's going to direct more of the growth in school spending. Yeah, right. So on schools, which is the long-term thing. That's already been done. And so I think Brown has a record on these issues. But but the politics of this are very interesting. It's like Brown... Brown still faces some prodding from folks on the left that want to rebuild the safety net that say that the things that Brown is doing are focused on the working poor, right, but not the poor poor, and that the poor poor took a big hit during this last recession, right? um, As we had to balance our books, we cut the safety net programs that they rely on. And these are not people that are going to be dramatically impacted even by a minimum wage increase or you know, an earned income tax credit or some of these other programs that, that benefit sort of the people living in and around the federal poverty line. These are the poor poor, the, the people in deep poverty. I think there's some, there's some sense on the left, and I think Brown, you know, can even there can point to things that he's done. But again, tying back into this issue of prudence and how do you reconcile need with prudence. And now, um, well, California has some really unique issues when it comes to poverty. We may have, arguably, we've done more here uh, than has been done in Washington, but we also have uh, a big problem. I mean, we have the highest poverty rate in the nation. We have the most the most poor people in the nation, you know, roughly 9 million people. Um, and so we may be doing more, but it's because we have to do more. And, you know, one of the big challenges is the, our, the demographic issue. We have, you know, a quarter of our pop not just to throw out numbers here, but a quarter of our population is foreign-born. Half of all kids in this country have at least one foreign-born parent. And, and uh, you know, those immigrants are more likely to be living in poverty. And so, um, yes, there's things that have been done here that Brown can point to, but I think there are a lot of folks that recognize um, that we're going to have, we have new challenges and we're going to have to do more. And it'll be interesting to see if there is any discussion about what to do. I and mean, that's, you know, 
I'm I'm looking forward to a discussion between Democrats and Republicans about how to how to solve poverty. I think that's uh, that's probably a good place for the state to be. We'll see if it if it gets to that or not. Well, it's interesting because you know I was thinking as you were talking about that. I mean, it's very true that that if you if you're addressing poverty in California, you need a California poverty solution. Um, yeah. Rural poverty right. in America is different than urban poverty, and there are rural Absolutely. parts of California. But you know, somebody who grew up in the southeastern United States, there's a different kind of poverty when you talk about the rural nature of the South. Right. Um, urban poverty uh, on the East Coast or in a city like New York looks very different than urban poverty in Los Angeles and San Diego. Um, as the study that we saw um, a few months ago from Stanford and the Public Policy Institute of California pointed out, uh, the measure of poverty probably should include things like the cost of driving your car back and forth to work and gas and roads and commuting time and things that, um, you know, working class families struggle to, to, to pay for. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating that you, you, that you hit this here, that if you're going to talk poverty, you, you, you have to find something that actually works in the place where you're talking about it. It's not this national discussion. Maybe it, it, it aligns with it, but it's, it's, a, it's a very state uh, specific thing. And the thing I talked about about the governor getting poked a little bit on it, uh, or at least highlighted, was the former First Lady of California, Maria Shriver, who was here in Sacramento on Thursday uh, and uh, talked to the governor and, and, and had right. a little discussion about issues, poverty, and how it specifically impacts women. I, I don't know that, that, that it's a poke, you know, necessarily, because I think, the, you know, the former First Lady was, was very sort of complimentary about the governor and the things that California ha- has done. But but you know she she's authored this new report, the Shriver Report, which is really focused on women in poverty, sort of looking at it through a, through a gender lens, but a similar issue. And it is another voice. I mean, it's another voice in that discussion. And um, look, I mean, I, I think Jerry Brown probably would talk about poverty if he thought it was politically, uh, um, you know, safer. Safer is that the word? I don't know. Help help me out here. Um, you know, but but I think there there are some political pitfalls, or there have been throughout the '90s uh, and and the last decade about talking about poverty. That you get branded as just another tax and spend Democrat. If you start talking about poverty, people think you just want to beef up welfare, and it's sort of this. Well, right. I mean, the, the politics are are challenging. They they are challenging, but they're also challenging inside Sacramento. Briefly, and 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 we'll hit a couple of other topics here in a moment because. Let's look at how this governor uh, pushed through a lot of what he did on the budget the first two years. Um, he held the line and, and, and continued some cuts into some social services programs that were not popular with Democrats inside the state capitol. As a matter of fact, one of the grumblings, and I'm sure you remember hearing these as well, during some of those early budgets where uh, legislative Democrats were effectively told to hold their nose and vote for it. Right. Um, a lot, some of the grumbling you heard was that this was a governor who did not understand poverty on the level that he needed yeah. to, did not understand the needs and the plight of those working poor uh, in a way. And, and, and I heard that from some very prominent Democratic yeah. uh, legislators yeah. who w- did not want to say it on the record, but we're privately grumbling that this was a guy who didn't quite get it. And so when but, you, but think of when you now talk about it being an issue, I was going to say, right. when you talk about it out there as an issue in the larger realm, and then you talk about the budget season ahead and the surplus and the programs, um, you may not have something that combusts into a, a big fight, but right. you've got a lot of the parts there that could if, if things don't work out a certain way. And I don't know what that means, but I don't think that that um, – 
that frustration with the governor is gone. It may have been um, sidelined, and everybody's happier that the economy's better, but there were frustrations inside his party that he uh, was not attuned enough to, to what those working poor in California needed. And so. I, 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 yeah, I mean, we should probably move on. I think he was able to make that case in the context of, look, this is part of the sales pitch about tax, that, that we can be trusted right. with the new right. tax money, right? So, I mean, there's a whole, it's another podcast. It's, it's the, the history, the uh, 2012, you know, 2010 to 2012, we'll do the, uh, the uh, Moments in California History podcast uh, during the interim. We will, we, will, we will record that sometime later this spring. Stay tuned, <laughs> everyone. Stay tuned. The box set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you referenced the box set last week. Let's, yeah. let's, let's swing through um, Southern California for a couple of different things here uh, on the back half of this podcast. First of all, uh, back to the issue we've talked a lot about, water and the drought. Uh, the governor was in uh, Los Angeles earlier this week talking to water officials there, uh, had apparently a phone conversation with the president um, on Wednesday, uh, right after the State of the Union, about the drought declaration and what California needed from the feds. And apparently the governor told uh, the president that some federal officials weren't being very helpful in some areas. Um, and then we're uh, getting more information. The snowpack report uh, this week was bad. State Water of Resources here on Friday announcing some new emergency measures about transfers and allocation of water. That issue is not going to go away. And the governor uh, I think the governor's message out of L.A. this week was uh, don't flush as much, don't shave as long or something to that effect, which is which he needs to say. But Yeah, well, there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know what, what's left to say about it. Water continues to be a big issue. There's <laughs> there's discussions over the water bond and the tunnels. And um, and it looks like we might be seeing some new legislation here potentially to do some some stuff in the short term so that the legislature and the governor can you know, help help demonstrate. I think it's just a sign that uh, water is becoming a, 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 a bigger and bigger issue, and that the legislature and the governor both feel the need to be, you know, showing people that they hear it, that they're they're raising attention about the issue and trying to do something about it. Yeah, well, and and water bond in particular. I'm glad you said that because I, I want to point that out. Um, water bond um, uh, politics again bubbling this week. Uh, two Republicans in the state Senate uh, proposed their own version of a 2014 water bond. Everyone will remember that the one that's already on the ballot and will be on the ballot unless the legislature and governor move it off the ballot <clears throat> um, is an $11 billion proposal crafted several years ago that um, vast majority of people you talk to, not everyone, but the majority of people you talk to believe it's unworkable, it's too big, uh, voters would would reject it. Um, though there are some people that say, let's put it up there anyway. The Republican right. plan from uh, Canella and Vidak of the Central Valley is a $9 billion proposal, $3 billion of which would go for surface storage, uh, dams, reservoirs, etc. But a very interesting part to this, and I think this is one of the political fights here, is that it would call for the money to be a continuous appropriation, therefore not have to come back to the legislature for authorization in, in years to come, because they believe Democrats in the legislature would kill some of those projects, um, given that there's been opposition on the Democratic and environmental side to a lot of dam and reservoir projects through the years. Uh, then, of course, there is a Democratic proposal out there, somewhat in the assembly, with uh, Anthony Rendon and Speaker John Perez, and, of course, Senator Lois Wolk in the Senate, uh, they have a smaller idea of a water bond. And then you have the governor who is not convinced, either in private conversations apparently or even when he signed the drought declaration, that we should put it on the ballot if he can't find something that the voters will support. And so 
I'm not sure that I put the odds of a water bond on the November ballot at um, at really really high. I I I still think the odds are it happens, but I, I'd right. say there's a there's a fair amount of discontent out there. Well, and and watch what I'm going to do here. Watch this. This is artful podcasting. Uh, and remember, a, a new water bond would need 27 votes in the Senate, two thirds of the legislature. And there are some new questions that were raised this week about whether or not the Democrats may be down a seat. How's that? Congratulations, Thank Anthony you. York, for the podcast transition of the week. Thank you. Thank you. Tell him what he's won, Don Pardo. <laughs> um, uh, that's two Don Pardo shout-outs in two <laughs> successive weeks of the podcast. Uh, yeah, we have some issues about the, the membership of the Senate uh, and, and that's the other part of the Southern California swing, at least here in the beginning. Uh, the most notable part of the week um, from uh, the Senate Democratic Caucus was the uh, guilty verdicts against Rod Wright, Democratic State Senator from Inglewood. Um, eight counts of perjury and voter fraud related to uh, the long case of him not living in his district or whether he lived there enough or whether he uh, told the truth about where he lived. Um, and by week's end, we saw the leader of the state Senate, Daryl Steinberg, um, say that the Senate would not vote to expel Wright, uh, or the, and also they did not think he needed to resign. This is the Democratic caucus had a private meeting on Thursday. Uh, however, Senator Wright agreed to uh, give up his chairmanships, but not his committee spots on some other committees. So his chairmanship of Senate governmental organization and some select committees. But he still will have some committee assignments, like budget, for example. And the pro tem defending that, saying that there's not been a conviction that a judge, and, and all due respect to the pro tem, but it's a bit of a lawyerly distinction versus what the public may see. But I'm not sure the public's dialed in yet, so fair enough. Uh, the judge hasn't offered a conviction yet. The judge had, you know, there may be an appeal by Senator Wright. And then also, too, that these charges are different than those allegations, um, since these are actually guilty verdicts, against Ron Calderon, which prompted his complete removal from all of his committee assignments. Uh, it's a, you know, it's, some of this is an inside kind of game, and it's a Los Angeles district kind of game, but at the same time, uh, you know, these are questions that those Democrats are going to have to wrestle with. And as you've pointed out, will Senator Wright be in that seat through the very big um, weeks and months of this legislative session? It's been it's been a challenge for Democrats to hold that two thirds majority, even though they had some cushion. It seems like uh, the membership is always in flux a little bit around the edges. And remember, Ted Lieu, I think, believe today is probably declaring a run for Congress for the uh, Henry Waxman seat, right, where Wendy Gruel is running. So uh, you know, things to watch. I mean, some of the, the trickle down and the, uh, the domino effect and whatever cliche about things slowly falling apart you want to use. Uh, uh, something to watch in the next few months. But if Senator Lou ran for the, uh, the Waxman congressional seat, that would be a thing this fall that wouldn't impact the membership right out, right? I mean, versus a Senator Wright, uh, if Correct. he had to step aside and resign, that would be an immediate vacancy in the Senate. Correct. Right. So we'll see. We'll see. There's there's lots of uh, churning here, there, ev everywhere on that. Um, and uh, and you know we could talk about a few other things, but that's what do you think? That's long enough. Is that good? Yeah. Enough? Sorry, sorry. We're not going to get to Calsters, but you know we can lead well, off we... there next week. Oh, oh, the problems <laughs> of Calsters and uh, whether or not the um, the pension uh, changing uh, initiative 
makes the ballot and a lawsuit against the title and summary. That's all kind of pension news. Maybe the pension podcast is next week. Maybe. Are you going to write about that? Can people read it on your blog or something? Uh, I wrote about CalSTRS this week. Why, thank you. News10.net slash capital. And uh, Anthony will be writing about uh, uh, income inequality and those big speeches, what, in Saturday's paper? Oh, let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's see if he gets finished today on Friday and the editors um, give him the green light. Okay, then back to work, Mr. York. That's Anthony York from the Los Angeles Times. I'm John Myers from News 10. We'll see you next time.